When something breaks down and you are in a hurry, you don't have much time to fix it as you ought, it is likely that you might consider what we often think about a quick fix. Let me just do the very bare minimum just to get the job done until you'll have time later to do a proper job fixing it. Sometimes the things you fix, whether they're quick fixes or you do the best job you can, uh, they break up again. And uh, it's frustrating when you fix something and they break up again and they just, the fixing doesn't last. And no matter how much you try and you fix it, at some point you just give up and just call in the professionals to do the job well, adequately, hoping that they will know how to fix it in a way that will last. When you keep fixing something that gets broken again and again, you long for a solution that will be a lasting solution, a fix that will be permanent. And uh, these realities, these longings for Fixing things that will last is not just stuff that goes on in our physical, physical needs, projects around the house, uh, but there are things also that we lack or long for lasting fixing that are in our own hearts. Things that are intangible, things that you cannot really put your finger on, but deep down you know there are things you want to have fixed. When it comes to addressing problems and needs, none of us would prefer the quick fixes for the long run, especially if those problems and needs are not just the material needs, but the needs of the soul, the needs of our hearts. Where do we turn for them? Where do we turn when our hearts, when our souls have those deep longings for things to be made right. The text we are about to look at speaks about a fixing, a, an addressing of a problem of our inner beings that Jesus alone is able to address. And when he addresses and what he addresses and what he promises is actually a solution that is not just a quick fix. It's a solution that it will not only be lasting for a little bit of a time, but is a long-lasting, permanent, and beyond our imagination kind of fixing. At last, lasting change. Would you open God's Word to the book of John? We'll be reading from chapter 7 from verse 37 to 46. This text, we get to hear Jesus offering a lasting change for the needs of our souls, a change that will be a permanent solution for the thirsts of our souls. And uh, as you are turning your Bibles to John chapter 7, you may find this passage on, in our Pew Bibles on page number 893. By the way, if, if you're visiting with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to grab one of our pew Bibles. 
uh, take it home with you. It would be a, a joy for us to give it to you and encourage you to have it and to read from it. But as you turn your Bibles to page number 893 in the Pew Bibles, just want to let you know that we are in a season in the life of our church when we are preaching through the book of 2 Samuel. And about three weeks ago, we reached 2 Samuel 7, where God gave the prophet Nathan a vision to speak to David about a dynasty, about a king that God will raise up in the house of David. And through this king, God will establish his kingdom forever over his people. It's what's called in the Bible the Davidic covenant, the covenant God gave to David. And this covenant is so huge and so significant. It's like a, the Mount Everest of the Old Testament that a number of the Psalms speak about it very explicitly. So in the last few Sundays, we have actually taken a little detour from the book of 2 Samuel and uh, spoke about Psalm 2 and about Psalm 89, both of which speak about the Davidic covenant that God made with David. And today we, we finish our detour of speaking about Jesus as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And this text wraps that up in a, in a surprising way. So let's listen to the words about Jesus and the words about who he is as he is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. John chapter 7, verse 37 to 46. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you join me in preaching, in praying, and uh, help asking God to help me preach this word, and help asking God to help us hearing uh, the message that will be preached. Let's ask the Lord for help. Father, you have revealed this word to us about your son, Jesus. You have sent him to us to speak your truth to us, to our hearts. Father, I need your help in proclaiming this word, and we all need your help in hearing this word. Would you speak to us in the presence of your Holy Spirit? And I ask that you would do so in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For his glory and honor, we pray. 
Amen. John is one of the two Gospels that does not start with the narratives of Jesus' human birth. Of the four Gospels, John and Mark don't mention much about the details of Jesus' human birth. When John presents and speaks about the origins of Jesus, he wants to highlight where Jesus came from. And John's answer is, he came from God. When John speaks about the origins of Jesus, John wants to take us with our minds to the existence of Jesus before he was even conceived of the Virgin Mary. That he existed from all eternity. This gospel, the gospel of John, begins with the words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then a few verses later in chapter 1, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, as we have just sung. John began the story about Jesus was speaking to us about his eternal existence even before he was conceived in the womb. Now, just because John does not tell us many details about Jesus' human birth, does not mean that John has nothing to tell us about Jesus' earthly origins. As a matter of fact, the text that we have just read this morning tells us about what the Jewish people expected about the birth of the Messiah. And this place that we have just read in John chapter 7 is the only place in the entire Gospel of John that will speak to us about the expectations, the human expectations of the human birth of the Messiah. Now the purpose of John's Gospel as an as a overall Gospel is to convince us that Jesus is the Messiah. You say, how do we know that? Well, just turn with me to John chapter 20, verse 31. John is telling us the purpose why he would write this entire gospel. He says in John 20, 31, actually 30 and 31, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. Verse 31 but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Oh, friends, this text is telling us that Jesus is actually the promised Messiah. This text is telling us that the promise of the, of the king that God gave long ago, as, as far back as 2 Samuel 7, the, the promise given to David about a king who will come out of his line, out of his house, out of his dynasty. This text is telling us 
that that king has finally arrived, that he is at last here. And what this text actually tells us is that when this king came, he came to bring a lasting change, a lasting change for our own hearts, for the longings of our hearts. So this message this morning could be summarized as at last, lasting change. This message, this text is teaching us that Jesus brings lasting inner change because he actually is the final Davidic king, the promised Messiah, the Christ. Jesus brings lasting inner change because he is the final Davidic king. Let's see how this passage that we have just read proves to us uh, this message this morning. The, the passage uh, could be divided up in two major parts. The first one is Jesus speaking about the lasting change that he brings. And then the second part of the passage, Jesus makes these promises as the final Davidic king. Let's see how this text shows both of these points. Jesus brings a lasting inner change. Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of him, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Now notice here how Jesus is addressing people who are longing for something to be fixed in their inner beings. He says, if anyone thirsts, what is Jesus talking about here? He's not talking about physical thirsting. He's talking about the thirst that happens in our inner beings, the thirst of the soul. Now you might say, what is the, the thirst of the soul? The image of of the inner thirst points to longing for some level, some kind of satisfaction. Inside our souls, there are desires, there are longings that are not met. And if, if we had some time just to go around and talk about some of the longings that we have in our inner beings, each and every one of us could go around and share some of those longings. Some are more superficial longings that we feel comfortable sharing with others. Others are way deeper longings that are so deep and for some of us are so private that we don't even dare to share with others. But we have them. Because our souls are not satisfied. Our souls are longing for something else other than ourselves to be satisfied by. We try to fill those desires, whether they are more superficial desires or deep down desires and longings. We try to fill those desires and longings with various, various solutions. With people, with relationships, with things, with accomplishments, with reputation, with power. Jesus spoke in the Gospel of John uh, about 
thirsting before, before chapter 7. If we would go through this gospel and just take a cursory reading of it, we would stumble over chapter 4 when Jesus was talking with a woman at the well in Samaria. She was not a Jew. She was a Samaritan. Jews and, and Samaritans would not talk to each other. But Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan woman at the well. Her life had been a mess. We're told that she had five husbands, and the man she was living with was not her husband. She was searching for love. She was searching for stability. She was searching for some significance. She thought that relationships could be that solution. She had, been a, she had had a troubled past. The five husbands she tried did not last. And when Jesus met her, she perhaps even gave up on the idea of marriage because she was with another man and was not married to him. Even that did not quench the inner thirst of this woman. So when Jesus meets her and talks with her, and Jesus asks for physical water, because he was at a well and he was thirsty, Jesus uses that opportunity of, of his physical thirst and being at a well to actually put his finger on what the soul, the inner being of this woman was longing for. Another thirst. And Jesus offered this woman living water that will quench her thirst. That was the first time in John that Jesus used this metaphor of, of thirst and of living water to speak not about physical needs, but to speak about needs in our souls, those deep longings that we try to find fixes for, and oftentimes those fixes are just quick fixes. They don't last. Here's Jesus speaking at the last day of this big feast, the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, and he's speaking to the crowds, and he says, if anyone is thirsty, the reality is that everyone is thirsty. The question is whether or not we actually realize our thirst. And the bigger question is, where do we turn to deal with the thirsts of our own souls, the longings that we long for? Let me ask you, are, are you aware of what your soul is thirsting after? Are you aware how it is thirsting and longing our inner beings can thirst for feeling accepted, for fe feeling loved, for being respected, for being appreciated, for being understood, or simply we long to be heard. We long for people to know that we are here. You wonder, do people in my family even know that I am here? Not physically. But do they know who I am? Do they know what I need? Do they know what I long for? Oh, friends, our hearts can long for reputation. Our hearts can long for control, for power, for pleasure, for safety, for comfort. You, when you wonder, how do you know what, what are the longings of your soul? What, what is your soul thirsting 
after? And, and you may need some help. How, what is my soul thirsting after? Here's one way you can think about it. You know you are thirsty for something when you are struggling with contentment when those needs are not met. Unmet needs is, uh, is often a great starting point to start digging into uh, the longings the, of, of, of our souls, what our souls thirst for. But here's a clue. Those initial layers of longings and unmet needs are, are layers, the surface layers. Most likely, there's deeper layers behind those surface layers. The longings of the soul are longings that go deep. Friends, if you, if you struggle with contentment in some area of life, don't ignore that. Don't waste that struggle with contentment. It's a likely indicator, at least a starting point, of one area of longing that your soul has. The thirsty soul is a soul that is seeking to be filled and to be satisfied in some way. Often we find things to satisfy our souls. Often we look for experiences to satisfy our souls. But the reality is, they don't last very long. The satisfaction may be there for a season, but then it wears off. And then we thirst again. And we long and are looking for the next thing again. Just as our physical bodies need water to function well, deep down at the deepest part of our inner beings, our souls were created to function well on God. Our souls, we were made by God in the image of God, and our inner beings only function well for the long run, for the long term, when our souls are fed and nourished and satisfied with God. And when that's not happening, all the longings that, that are happening in us we are oftentimes trying to slap and, and put a quick fix on it. And those quick fixes work for a while. They just don't work for the long term. They wear off. So Jesus is speaking here to, and is addressing, is anyone thirsty? If anyone thirsts, and the reality is actually everyone thirsts. Some know it, others don't. Because the quick fixes are working in the short run. And they feel satisfied. Why do I need to hear and listen to this guy speaking these words? My life is good right now, Pastor. I praise God. Everything is good. I don't need to, I don't need to think about what my soul thirsts for. But the reality is, just wait until the quick fixes wear off. Anyone and everyone thirsts. The question is, do you see yourself? as one whose soul is thirsting. Jesus invites us to come to him and drink. To drink of him. Look at verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is a bold claim. Jesus claims that encountering him and drinking of him satisfies the thirsts of our souls. That's a bold claim. What does it mean to, 
to come to Jesus and to drink of him. Well, Jesus defines it for us. He tells us that it means to put one's hope, one's trust, and one's reliance on Christ because Christ is the only one who can truly quench the thirst of our souls. Notice how Jesus defines the drinking in verse 38. He says, whoever believes in me, this means that drinking of Christ is to put our reliance on him, to put our hope in him. Oh, friends, when people believe that Jesus is the one whom God promised to send, when, Jesus, when people believe that Jesus is the one that God promised to reign over us, to be the ultimate king that God promised back to David in 2 Samuel 7, notice what will happen in our inner beings. A radical shift, a radical change takes place inside us. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you see here the, the change? The, the soul that thirsts and comes to Jesus will experience a change in which not only is the soul satisfied of thirst, but out of his soul, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. This picture of river of living water is not a, just a, a random picture. It's not just a flamboyant picture. This picture was used in a few places in the Old Testament to speak about the experiences of God's people with their God. In Jeremiah, for example, in Jeremiah the prophet describes the foolishness of God's people for turning away from God and turning towards other idols to find their satisfaction and their, their pursuit of life after other idols. And the picture that Jeremiah, the prophet, gives of his people, of the people of Israel, as they turned away from God, here's the picture that Jeremiah got from the Lord to describe their relationship. Jeremiah 2.13, God says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Trying to change the solution to the longings of their hearts, instead of having the fountain of living water, which is God, they, they changed to cisterns that were leaking. For some reason, they were compelled that those cisterns would actually be a solution for their needs. And God says they were not. They were quick fixes that would wear off. But here in this picture, God describes himself as the fountain of living waters. Another place that in the Old Testament uses this picture of living waters is uh, at, towards the end of the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. God told the prophet Zechariah that he will restore his people after they will have been devastated, taken over in bondage, destroyed, that God will restore his people. And one of the pictures of that restoration that God promises in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 8 and 9, 
Listen to the, the words of future restoration for the people of God. On that day, God says, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. Did you hear how the promise of restoration is that the living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, out of the city that would have been destroyed by the enemies? Well, friends, Jesus is using this picture of living waters that in the Old Testament was describing God himself and was describing the restoration that God will bring to make his people satisfied again in an ultimate lasting way. It would be the, the, the time when God would reign over his people and over all the earth in a new significant way. And that picture is living waters. And Jesus stands on this great day, the last day of the feast of the, of the tabernacle. And he's saying something absolutely radical. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and he who believes in me, out of his soul, out of his inner being, will flow rivers of living water. What God promised to do for his entire people, what God promised to do when he would restore his people in in a fresh and lasting way. Now Jesus says, the time has come at last. Look to me, believe in me, and I'm going to make a change in you that will last forever. A lasting change. Friends, when you think about believing in Jesus, do you think of him only as one you should have good impressions about, to believe that he was a great person, to believe that he's perhaps the greatest teacher with the greatest influence. Oh, friends, Jesus actually teaches here much more that when he speaks to us and calls us to believe in him and when we look to him in faith, he produces a change in us, transforming the thirsty soul into a place from which, out of which, rivers of water. The thirst will be totally quenched not only will it be quenched for us, but it will be available to flow into others as well so that God's restoration is not only for our own lives, but also for the lives of those around us. Oh, friends, Jesus wants us to believe in him as the one who can satisfy the thirst of our lives. To see him as the one who quenches the thirst of our lives and what he fixes and when he fixes it genuinely, oh, friends, it lasts. This is why believing in Jesus is not just a one-time decision that we make once upon a lifetime, and then we just sort of put Jesus on the shelf and just go on with our lives. Oh, no, Jesus brings about a lasting change in our souls. Now, what specifically is this inner change? What, what exactly is this picture of rivers of living water. Well, Jesus tells us, actually defines for us uh, what this is. Verse 39, thou this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet 
The Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, this picture of living waters that God used in the Old Testament to speak about Himself as the one who will restore His people, as the one who will bring them a lasting renewal, this actually is the Spirit of God. It's a picture of what happens in our beings when the Spirit of God takes residence in us. This is what happens in every genuine believer. The Holy Spirit begins taking residence in us in such a way that the restoration promised in the Old Testament through the image of living waters is now fulfilled in our own inner beings. Oh, friends, the promise of the Spirit of God in every person who belongs to God was one of the big promises God made for the new covenant. We've been working in the book of 2 Samuel through the covenant God made with David. But as we read the rest of the Old Testament, we find out that the covenant with David is not the last covenant that God made. He actually promised a new covenant. And that new covenant is summarized in Ezekiel 36. Let me just read a few words of that new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The promise that every follower of God, every worshiper of God will have the Holy Spirit of God inside them, and God will change their hearts, that God will cleanse their hearts, cleanse them from their idols, give them a new heart, put His Spirit in them, and it is God who will cause them to obey Him in a fresh and lasting way. All these were promises of the new covenant. So when Jesus comes and says that actually this, this promise of living waters that will satisfy your souls and your thirst is actually referring to the Holy Spirit, putting all this together, John is saying, Jesus is the one who is bringing about the new covenant promises. Jesus is the one who's actually going to bring about, inaugurate, cause the new covenant to become a reality for all those who put their faith and trust in Christ. Oh, friends, what a big promise Jesus made to all who are thirsty, not only to find our thirst quenched, but to become people out of whom rivers of living water flow for the restoration of all those around us. This is the work of the Holy Spirit as He takes residence in us, and as the new covenant becomes a reality, all of it is possible as we look to Jesus in faith. Now, does this mean that Christians never struggle with sin? Does this mean that we never struggle with, with, with falling off 
the wagon into pursuing other idols occasionally. Don't know, it doesn't mean that. We, as Christians, we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with the lures of falling off after other idols. But it does mean that we can have confidence that the inner change that God does in us is a lasting change. It will not fade out. Our inner beings will not only be quenched of thirst, but we will be the people in whom this quenching, this satisfying, with all the ups and downs that we experience in this life on earth, in the long run, will last. Sometimes may feel like we're thirsty again. It's like, Pastor, but I feel like my soul is thirsty again. Perhaps you have been putting a quick fix over that which God wanted you to have as a lasting fix in your life. Perhaps you have fallen back into exchanging the God who is a living water for your soul with broken cisterns. And we need to be brought back to the reality of God is our living water. The Holy Spirit is inside of us. We need to rely on Him. We need to walk with Him. Oh, friends, this is why we need to stay accountable to one another. This is why we need to be encouraging one another to, to lock arms as members of local churches to say, we want to we follow Jesus together because He is the one who gives us living water. And sometimes when we, we veer off, sometimes when we fall off the wagon, we need to be reminded of, of what God has promised to do for us in Jesus. That's why, my friend, if you, are, if you are not yet right with God, if you are not made right with Christ, if you have not put your confidence in Him as, your, as the one who quenches the thirst of your soul, first and foremost, look to Jesus in faith. Put your confidence and your hope and your reliance on Him. He alone can change and satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts in a lasting way. If you'd like to know what that means, we would love to talk with you after the service. I would love to talk with you and meet up with you during the week uh, to understand what what your soul is thirsting after and how your life uh, can be turned around if you look to Jesus by faith. For those of us who are Christians, for those of us who have looked to Jesus in faith and yet struggle in this longing I want to encourage us to, to keep each other accountable, to, to, to stay together, to remind us of who Jesus is. For those of us who perhaps are, are, are new to church and perhaps don't have accountability relationships, this is why we want to encourage people to, to be members of churches where we commit to follow Jesus together and encourage one another because Jesus is the one who provides a lasting fix for the soul's Uh, and for the thirst of our hearts. But Jesus makes this promise. Jesus makes this radical promise as the final Davidic king. This is what we see in the rest of this passage. Jesus makes this promise as the final Davidic king. How do we know that? John has has an interesting way to captivate us, to catch us, to surprise us. He puts true words about Jesus on the mouths of the people who reject him. John has an interesting way to catch us by surprise. 
In, this, uh, in the rest of the, the text that we have just read, John presents to us that there is a host of people in the crowds, and they respond to Jesus differently. Some, some are wondering who is this guy who is speaking this way, who makes such bold claims about himself. After the speech that Jesus gave on this last day, we hear that some people became convinced that he's a long-expected prophet. The one Moses wrote about in the book of Deuteronomy, when he said that God will send another prophet like me, you shall listen to him. Others became convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the king God promised to raise up to reign over David's throne. Others denied this claim because they misunderstood Jesus' human origins. They thought he was a Galilean. Others wanted to arrest Jesus and get rid of him. And these were the chief priests, the religious leaders. Yet others were amazed by his teachings and would rather disobey the orders of their bosses than capture Jesus and arrest him. In short, in, this, in verses 40 to 46, we see a big variety of responses to this Jesus who claimed such audacious and, and big claims about himself. What do these responses teach us about Jesus? Well, the Jews that expected that Jesus is the prophet, the one like Moses, um, they had reasons why they would believe that. After all, in the Gospel of John, John told us that Jesus fed the crowds in the wilderness, just like Moses fed the crowds in the wilderness. That this Jesus actually spoke about himself as being the manna, the bread that comes down from heaven. That's what Jesus did. I mean, that's what Moses did with the people of Israel in the wilderness of 40 years. And now Jesus stands up and says, let the thirsty come to me and I will give them to drink. This is what Moses did when the people were thirsty and, they, and Moses hit the rock and gave them water to drink in the wilderness. There's many reasons why some in the crowds would think this man, Jesus, must be the prophet. There are good reasons to assume why others thought he was the Messiah. After all, the classic text in the Old Testament that spoke about thirst and the thirsty and the covenant with David is Isaiah 55. We've read this passage earlier in the service. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And I say, what is that? What is that rich food? Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My everlast, my steadfast, sure love for David. In other words, the rich food that God promises, the rich food that God wants to give to our souls comes through our ears. Come and hear, and you shall live. Life is promised to us through what we hear. 
this is a rich food that God wants to give us. And then he, he, he ties that bow of this wonderful present, and he says, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. God wants to give to you. When the Jews heard Jesus speaking to the thirsty and offering them living waters, this lasting fix, they're putting the two together. It's like, this must be the man promised, the, the one who fulfilled the covenant with David. So they get it. This must be the Messiah. They put the two and two together and said, this is he who was promised. So some said, he's the Christ. But John actually tells us that Jesus is both the prophet and the king. That Jesus is actually not supposed to be divided in, in this crowd. Some thought he's a prophet. Others saw, thought he's the king. Actually, he's both. He's both the prophet and the king. The Jews had no category of that. Jesus fulfills the, pro the office of the prophet and the office of the king. And yet when some others hear, well, he's the Messiah, they say, no way he can't be the Messiah. And their insight, why they don't think Jesus is the Messiah, has an irony to it. On one side, they reject Jesus based on wrong information they had about him. They thought he was from Galilee. And they reject Jesus because they had the right information about the Bible, of what was expected about Jesus, that he should come from the offspring of David, that he should be born from Bethlehem. What's amazing about these people who rejected Jesus is that they had the right biblical knowledge, and they still missed Jesus. They had the right biblical knowledge of what the Old Testament told us that the Messiah would be. This is the only time in the whole book of John when we get to know and see details about the human birth of the Messiah. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? No, friends, these opponents of Jesus actually confirm the Scripture that the Messiah had to come from Bethlehem, that he had to come from the offspring of David. Why? because he would be the fulfillment of the covenant with David. These were true expectations of the Messiah, and yet for this crowd, they still missed Jesus. And John includes here this irony that's a caution for us. We as readers know full well that actually Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that he was born out of the house of David. The prophecies about him being the long-expected king were all true, the irony is that people had this biblical knowledge and still missed Jesus. And isn't that the, the danger and, the, and the, the trap for some people even today? They can hear the right information about Jesus and still miss encountering him personally. Miss looking to him as their king, as their redeemer, because their, their math their, their logic, something is breaking down in their thinking. Oh, friends, some people reject Jesus even while they have the right biblical knowledge.
And that should caution us. And yet there's others who simply are rejecting Jesus flat out and would rather have him killed than continue to live. These were the, sadly, those who are deeply entrenched in their religion. The chief leaders. There's a way to be so entrenched in religion that you actually want Jesus out, not in. Religious people hate Jesus in this text. Religion alone does not mean that your heart is ready to embrace Jesus. Because there is a way to be religious and to just be around, wrapped around your own man-made religious views. So this should caution us. And then there's the officers. The officers are the servants of the chief priests. They are like the police of the temple. They received clear orders from the chief priests. Go capture Jesus. Bring him. We're going to arrest him. And the officers do something amazing. They disobey the orders because they are amazed at the words of Jesus. When they come back without Jesus to their bosses, the officers answered, no one has ever spoken like this man. Friends, they were supposed to, to catch Jesus, not to embrace him for their lives, but to catch him, to deliver him to the priests, but they couldn't. Because when they heard what this man claimed about himself, their initial plans of capturing Jesus to get rid of him all melted down because what they heard with their ears melted, brought them to stop in their tracks, get to the point in which they changed their direction. And instead of taking orders from their superiors to get Jesus to get rid of him, what they heard with their ears coming out from his mouth left them changed. Changing their plans, changed in amazement. Now, it's unclear whether or not they actually put their faith in Jesus, but at the very least, they stopped pursuing Jesus in a way to get rid of him. And their words speak better than they realized. The phrase that John uses here, no one ever spoke like him, could be translated as no human being had ever spoken like this. And the irony is, if we keep up with the wholeness of the Gospel of John, is that actually no human being can speak like this. No mere human being can speak like this. But John's been telling us he is no mere human being. He came from God. He existed with the Father as the Word, the, the eternal Logos, the eternal Word of God. He is the one who is speaking. He is the one who has become flesh. He's the one who now has the authority to speak to our hearts and say, if you're thirsty, come to me, and I will turn your inner being into rivers of living water. Oh, friends, no mere human being can offer you that. No mere human being can give your soul the solution that your soul ultimately longs for. 
He can do that because he, because he is the promised king. He's the final king. He is the last king in the line of David. After this king, there is no need for another king to wait for. He is the last of the Davidic kings because when he comes on the throne of David, his reign will have no end. The solution he brings to our souls will not wear off. No one will be able to, to fight against his reign in our hearts, to take away the, the royalty that he brings to us. Oh, friends, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the hopes that the Old Testament have pointed to. He is the prophet. He is the Davidic king. And because he's the Davidic king, he actually ushers in the promises of the new covenant because he has the right to do that. He has the authority to pour out the Holy Spirit on those who would look to him in faith. He's the one Moses wrote about. He's the one David wrote about. He's the king who would actually be rejected just as David was rejected. Yet to those who are amazed by his claims, to those who would come to him and drink of him, to those who would believe in his name, Jesus brings a lasting change, a lasting solution to the thirsts of our hearts. Friends, this Christmas Eve Sunday, I want to leave you with this summary. The Christmas message is that Jesus is a long-promised Messiah. He came to bring lasting change, lasting inner change, because he is the final Davidic king. What are you doing with Jesus? How are you responding to him? Let's pray. Father, thank, uh, thank you for being a God who would Send us what our souls ultimately yearn for. Father, you expose to our hearts, to our hearing, to our seeing that our souls are hungering and thirsting for something more than what this world can give to us, for something more than what human relationships or human achievement or human things, earthly things can give us. Father, you made our souls to hunger and thirst for you. And in your amazing grace, you have given us yourself, your only Son. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will indwell in every heart who's gathered in this place this morning so that Christ would be King in our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.